just got back from a children's conference in Nashville. It was so much fun. We learned so much. It was, they had 190 breakout sessions that we were able to choose from. Like it was insane. We had so much, it was like information overload. But I went to a bunch of different classes that were in different categories. Like they were not even in the same track. They're not even in the same category. And everyone that I went to, part of the session was on how to have difficult conversations and conflict management. And I'm like, man, God, I don't want to go home if this is any telltale sign of what's coming. Well, then my dad says, Shelby, I need you to wrap up on Revelation if you could just go ahead and preach on the lukewarm church. And I was like, this is that difficult conversation. All day when I was studying, I'm like, oh, this is, just know that I love you all. So does God, it's in his word, and we're just gonna have a difficult conversation and a great understanding, and we're all gonna leave on a whole nother level, right? So that's how this is gonna go. Um, but before, before we start talking about the specific church, I like to do a little bit of background. It just helps my mind to always see the big picture and then come down to the little picture, because there's a lot in this. So definitely grab hold, take notes, and I'll, I'll make it understandable, I promise. If I don't, you can fire me afterwards. But, so a little bit of the background. The entire book of Revelation was written to seven churches. Sometimes we think that just the section for the seven churches was written to the actual seven churches, okay? The, the entire book of Revelation was a letter that was sent to the seven churches, okay? Is that making sense now? So it wasn't just the pieces, it's the whole book. Just like Ephesians, just like Philippians, those were just letters sent to the church of Philippi or the church of Ephesus or same with Colossians. Same. So all of these letters that we see in the New Testament, how that worked is that they were sent to one church specifically. That church read the letter. They could, you know, accept or decline what God was saying for them. And then they passed it on to another church because they didn't have the Bible. So when God spoke something, now these letters are being passed around from church to church for them to be able to grow and go, what's God saying? How does this apply to us here? We now have the word of God. And we say that the word of God is being preached all throughout churches, right? So that's kind of the idea behind these letters. So the entire book of Revelation was, was written to the seven churches, the whole thing, not just each specific one. Now, John wrote the church or the letter to Revelation he wrote it while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. My favorite part is why he was exiled is because they put him in a pot of boiling oil and couldn't kill him. And he just kept preaching and it said that he was unharmed at the end of it. And so they exiled him. So now we know why he wrote about the end. It kind of sums up his life at that point. But this is John. That's who, that's who he was writing this, the, the book of. Revelation 2. So this is about 65 years after Jesus was resurrected. It's kind of our timeline of when the book of Revelation was actually written. Um, why the seven churches? I've always wondered, like, why those seven? Was that it? Or were there more? Or kind of what did this look like? It was written to those seven churches because they were the seven major churches in Asia Minor at the time, which is present-day Turkey. So they were the major churches. The other important part about that is that they were the major churches on the trade route where everybody traveled through. So they were not written in some crazy order. They were written literally in the order when you left Ephesus, which is the loveless church, is the first church. When you left Ephesus and followed the trade route, you would run into these churches 
in the order that they're written in Revelation. So I thought that was interesting. I always like to know a little bit of background. And then I wondered why the church of Ephesus was actually first. This was a fun fact I did not know either. When you study out the kind of the behind the scenes, the timelines, all of that, John was actually someone that attended the church of Ephesus. Timothy would have been John's pastor. How cool is that? I know, fun fact, see? I'm glad you came tonight. Now you know. So, but how would you feel as Timothy? Like I went, oh, I understand why Paul was so encouraging to him. Like, no pressure. The disciple John is amongst your congregation. (laughs) It's a little bit intimidating for young Timothy there. Good thing his grandmother was on that prayer chain. Um, So they were on the most popular trade route. That's why they were there. And then again, it was the entire thing. And then it talks about um, when the when Jesus is talking to John and he says that there's seven lampstands and there's seven stars. Okay, the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. That's what that's referring to there at the beginning of Revelation, um, meaning that they hold the light. They are not the light themselves, which means our church can distinguish the light or we can hold the light. It's a lampstand, not the lamp. But then the other side is at the seven stars. And in different translations, it says seven angels, which... The Greek word, because Revelation was written in Greek originally, is messengers, which translate out to pastors. And so the seven stars actually is representative of pastors. So when he's writing to the angel of Ephesus, he's actually writing to the pastor of Ephesus of that church. So look, now we understand Revelation in a whole new level. Like you're like, huh, so that book is readable after all. Okay, it truly is. Like it, it makes sense. It's just written in secret code. So you really... I mean, the guy just got out of a boiling pot of oil. Like, you can't judge him at all for being slightly confusing in his writing. He did a wonderful job with the actual book of John. So we know that there was a reason for the struggle. Um, Okay, and then another misconception is that this was written just to those churches specifically. It got put in the Bible, which means it applies to all of us, all churches of all time, not just one time, not just, it applies to all of us because now we are the body of Christ. We are the church. So this applies. Everything we talk to uh, talk about tonight talks about our church on a corporate level. It talks about our church nationwide, worldwide, the, the body of Christ, the church of Christ, but then it also is talking to us as individuals. And that's where the difficult conversation comes in. But it's going to talk specifically to us about some areas in our life and some characteristics that are revealed in the lukewarm church. So at this point, you've talked about the first six. If you forgot what those were, you weren't here, you can go on our website. They're all on there and you can listen to them all in order. But tonight, we're just going to talk about one. In every one of the churches, there are seven things that are discussed with the churches, okay? The first thing, and I'll let you write this down for your notes, but then I'll also repeat it because we're gonna go through those seven things for this church. But the first thing is the commission. Who are we writing the letter to? So that's the first thing for every church. That's the first line you're gonna read is it says, I'm writing this letter to whichever church. So it's who it's to. The second thing is the character description of Christ. And I'm really excited when we get to that part of tonight. But he, every time that he starts talking to this church, he says, It's me and characterizes himself as something different, which in this case, I didn't get to study all the other ones today, but in this case, it actually reveals the area that they're lacking Christ in their church, which is neat, the way he presents himself. Um, The third thing is commendation, is that Jesus says, this is what I see that you're doing right. I want to encourage you in this area. 
So that's the third one that he does. The fourth one that he has is correction. He says, now this is what I see that needs tended to. These are the areas that need fixed. These are the areas that need changed. These are the areas that need confronted in your church. So this is the fourth one. The fifth one is then he gives them counsel. Okay, now I want us to just take a a freeze for a minute because we will not receive this message well. We won't receive any message well for that sense, but, or even understand our God if we don't really know his heart towards us. Jesus never, ever, ever comes to be discouraging, to bring condemnation, to bring guilt, to bring shame, to bring this is how messed up you are and you're just a failure. That is not the heart of our God. Every time he comes, there's gotta be hard conversations because unless you're Jesus, you are not living wholly, completely according to the word of God in your life. It's impossible. And so every time he comes, he goes, no, I know what you're capable of. I know what's possible for you. I love you so much that there's so much more in store for your life. I don't want these factors to hold you back and cause you to miss out on everything that I have for you. So that's the heart of our God, okay? But here's how he comes. So he, he expresses his character and then he tells us what we're doing right. Then he brings correction, but then he brings counsel. He doesn't just leave us there like, well, best of luck to you. I'll check in with you next time John writes a letter if he's not dead. That's not what he does. Is he goes, now let me show you how to fix this area. This is specifically this area, how we can fix it. How cool is that? And what a perfect picture of how accountability should work in our life as well. That God is that picture. Okay, living a life, and we're gonna get that in a little bit, but living a life outside of accountability is dangerous for everyone in here. We are supposed to be accountable to God, but... God has set people in our lives that we can be accountable to because it is impossible to submit and be accountable to a God we can't see and not people that we can see. We have to choose to be accountable to the authorities that God has set in our lives. Otherwise, we're made out to be liars. I'm submitted to God, just not any man. Well, it's not in the order of God. And so counsel, he tells us how. The next thing is that then there's a challenge. Okay, now that I've counseled you, this is the next step that you can take to bring this to pass. So he gives you that challenge. And then he gives you the covenant promise that if you are to accept this challenge, if you are to walk this out, here's the promise that I have on the other side. Sometimes we cut God off at correction in our lives. Is that we let God get to the point that he corrects us and then we're mad at God and everybody involved. We never let him get to the point that he goes, let me counsel you. Let me challenge you. Now, let me show you the promise because he's not trying to tell us where we need to address areas in our lives to defeat us. He's showing us what to address and how to address it so that we can have the promise that he has readily available for us. We serve a super, super, super awesome God. And so that's what I just wanted to lay that foundation before we jumped into this so that we understand that he's not being hard, but he's also a God of truth and he's got to be able to speak the truth. And so, okay, so his commission Let's start reading. We're going to read in uh, Revelation 3.14 is where we're going to start. I mean, it was decent. And it says, and the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. Okay. So we see the commission. We are writing to the pastor of the church of the Laodiceans. Then says these things says, and this is where he names himself. So this is the second part where he identifies. So the character of himself. He says, um, these things says the amen, 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Three things that he identifies himself as. This is who he says. He doesn't say, this is what I do. He says, this is who I am. These three things. Okay, amen. As he's saying, I am the truth. My name is truth. I will bring the truth. All, everything that I speak is truth. I can speak no lie. And you can write this down. I'm not going to go to all these scriptures because we will run out of time for sure. So I'm going to write these down that you can study when you're going back through your notes. But Isaiah 65, 16. And 2 Corinthians 1, 20. Explain that a little better. The 2 Corinthians 1.20 is the one that says that in all his promises, in him are yes and amen. That he is coming saying, I am truth. So I'm coming as truth to your life. Then he says, he is the faithful and the true witness. He is consistent and constant. He is faithful to God and what he says, even to the point of death. He sees all and knows all. So that's what he's saying when he says, I am faithful. He's saying, I'm faithful to you, but I need you to understand that I am faithful to my father, even to the point of death. I see all, I know all. So that's his second description of himself. The third is that he is the beginning of the creation of God. He made everything. He is the source and cause of all creation. Cool, right? Okay, so when he shows up on the scene, he says, all right, I'm coming to you. I need you to know that my name is truth. I need you to know that my name is faithful. And I need you to know that um, I'm the beginning of all creation, which means nothing exists outside of me. That's how I'm coming to you. So he's making who he is very known. Then he brings the commendation. He says, hey, these are the areas that you're doing right. Okay, so let's keep reading. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Hmm. So this is the only church out of the seven that he has nothing good to say about. Zero. There is nothing good to say about the lukewarm church. All of the other churches, the six other churches, he mentioned works or deeds that they were doing that they needed to be praised for. That he's like, hey, you're doing this right, but the heart behind it needs adjusted. Hey, you're doing this right, but you got to balance it on this side. Hey, you're doing this right here. There's nothing going right. Nothing. So he shows right here. I mean, first thing, there's nothing. So he jumps right into correction. So it says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Man. Pretty bold, right? So every time I read this, and I know, I don't even know why I make this connection. Um, but I always think of the letter alfalfa wrote <laughs> in the little rascals. <laughs> I don't know why that pops in my head. Every, you are the scum between my toes. Love, alfalfa. <laughs> like, that's how I feel this is happening right here. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now you know alfalfa was in fact saved and was quoting Revelation to his girlfriend. Um, but I, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So we're going to stop there and kind of talk about this correction in here. So why was there no commendation for this church? I, I tried to study through that. Is that there was no work that was done in full. 
everything was done half-hearted. Not one thing in their lives, not one thing in the church was being done to completion. Everything was half-hearted. Everything was convenient. Everything was passive. I heard a quote that says, the quickest way to get to a lukewarm church is just to sit there. It's true. The quickest way to live a lukewarm wife or life is just to sit there. You can be a lukewarm wife too, but just sit there. Don't do anything. You talk a good talk. You say all the right things. You know all the right things. And you are an expert in everybody else's life and ministry. You know everything about it. What needs changed? What needs adjusted? But you're sitting there. And this is where the lukewarm church has nothing good to be said about it. Everything is convenient. Everything is convenient. Now, this is where I want us to reflect and go, how am I living as a Christian? Because this is the church of Laodicea, which means they're Christians. Okay, these are not sinners, random people. These are Christian people that it says, you are lukewarm. I have nothing good to say about you. Rather, I would vomit you out of my mouth. Because everything is done out of convenience. You go to church when it's convenient for you to go to church, not because it's important for you to go to church. You serve when it's convenient for you to serve, not because you know that you are called to be a part of the body of Christ. You give when it's convenient for you to give, not because it's a standard in your life. You pray, you be in the word when it's convenient. We act holy, we live holy when it's convenient. We're accountable when it's convenient. We worship when it's convenient. We live double-minded because we never will which way is more convenient in the moment. We have a convenient relationship with Jesus. Convenience, 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 convenience. As I was studying that today, I went, oh my goodness, that is totally the theme of America today, is that everything is convenient. If I have time, I will. If I get around to it, I will. If there's not a game on that day, I will. If my kids don't have sports that day, I will. If how many things conveniently replace the word of God, the promises of God, and the direction of God in our life? I told you, this is why it's a difficult conversation. And again, this is not coming across condemning or discouraging. This is for us to really take a, a note because just as the church here of Laodicea, just as the lukewarm church, that God's saying, I have nothing good to say about you and this is coming to your ruin. I need you to grab hold of this. I need you to fix and change some areas in your life or you're gonna be destroyed. You're gonna be taken out. And I have promises for you to grab hold of, but living your life of convenience will keep you from ever getting those promises. So it's not out of discouragement. It's not out of condemnation. It's not out of anger. It's out of encouragement that goes, I know what I have available for you, but you gotta confront some stuff in your life first. So it was out of convenience. It was self-sufficient and self-righteous, arrogant and prideful. There was no self-denial. When he will vomit them out of his mouth, it's because lukewarm to God is nauseating. It's speaking with no follow-through. Jesus didn't give words, he gave his life. But then on the other hand, when we're lukewarm, we give words and no life. I say one thing, but there's zero follow through in my life. There's zero passion in my life. We conform to what is popular. We blend in. What's lukewarm water? It's a blend of hot and cold. It's not one or the other. So when we live lukewarm lives, it's a blend of the church and the world. Crazy, right? 
So that's our lukewarm, because we won't just pick one or the other. So that's what Jesus is explaining the dangers here. So my next question is, is, you know, how did they get there? How do we end up living lukewarm? How do we get to the point that we're lukewarm? Because we can identify that we're living lukewarm. Maybe in some of those areas you go, oh, I do that. I'm convenient in that area. I'm convenient in that area. I'm self-sufficient. I'm, so we can point out these areas in our lives that maybe we're living a little bit lukewarm. But then how do we get there? How do we confront it? So how did we get there? They were lulled into false contentment. Lulled into false contentment. If we can do life without church, we will. If we can do life without God, we will. If we can do life without the word, we will. If we can do life without prayer, we will. If we can do life without tithing, we will. If we can do life without serving, we will. If we can do life and you can fill in the blank. But I promise you that is the biggest deception of the enemy. The biggest deception, why? Because we're doing without something we were created to have. And so now we are living a life thinking that we are doing just fine without the thing that was created for us to thrive. What a trap of the enemy. What a lie of the enemy that would deceive us and go live a convenient, comfortable life over here. He's not gonna make it bad for you. Do you guys think about that for a minute? Satan is not gonna make you have a terrible life outside of church. He's gonna make sure it's glorious and glamorous and you got all that you want. He is not gonna give you an evil, mean, sad life outside of the word of God. No, he's gonna make it great. Look how much time you're saving in the mornings. Look how much more weekend you have. So he's gonna make everything as convenient and glamorous as possible outside of the thing that was created for us to thrive. So that's the first thing is that they were lulled into false contentment. If they can do life without him, they will. And they did. Okay, so let's read 317. And it says, I am rich, have become, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Nothing should be able to replace Jesus in our life. A crossless life is an uncrucified lifestyle. So they began this life in the physical. Notice all of these things are physical things that they say here. But they became dependent on themselves. There's always a backup plan. I don't have to follow through with the word of God completely because if I can make enough money on my own, I'm fine. If my family can do fine without being obedient to the word of God, that's totally fine. If I can do okay without filling the blank with anything in scripture, then I'm fine. But what is that saying? It's saying that you've become God of your life. I don't need God because I've become my own God. So that's another pitfall that they had here. And so they became dependent on themselves. Now, there's a few other things historically about the church of Laodicea that are important here because I think it's very interesting that Jesus confronts the physical things that are causing a spiritual deficit in their life. Jesus confronts the fact he's not mad because they're rich. God wants us blessed. He's mad when their money becomes their God. That's what makes a difference. And so he says, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. He says, so you're, so you're self-reliant. But here's the physical thing that is happening there. The church of Laodicea was a psychotically rich community. 
They had a financial institution that was absolutely booming. So the, the churchgoers of Laodicea were all rich. They had banks and people, they would send 20 pounds of gold every year to the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, there was no lack of money or gold or that in the region of Laodicea. And so this is being confronted. But on the other end, Jesus says, but you don't know that you're poor. So he's confronting the physical thing that they're relying on that's causing the spiritual deficit in their life. So he's saying this, you think you're rich and dependent on this physical thing in your life because that's what you're pursuing. But I need you to understand that spiritually you're bankrupt. That was the confrontation there. Now let's keep going because there's more. Okay. Um, then he says, uh, sorry, I've got to roll down here in my notes. That you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You're wretched. You're causing misery. You're unhappy. You're mean. You're miserable, which means you're living worthless. You live in pain, distress, and a poor quality of life. You're poor. You're spiritually bankrupt. You are spiritually blind in darkness. And you're naked. No covering. You're exposed. No righteousness. No accountability. More fun facts about Laodicea. They were known in their region that they have one of the most famous medical schools that ever existed. And do you know what their number one selling item was? Eye salve. Eye salve. This physical thing that they are famous for and dependent on is a spiritual deficit in their life. It says you're blind. Then there's more. They also were at that point the manufacturing center of Asia Minor, clothing specifically. And Jesus says, you're naked. You're naked. Every area. Here's the other thing I also found interesting. They had the poorest quality of water in Asia Minor because it came through an aqueduct from another city. So it was lukewarm and full of sediment and hard water. Hmm. Sometimes our intake is very revealing of our spiritual condition as well. So it's interesting that all they have to intake, the only water they are intaking is lukewarm. But when they are confronted, the church of Laodicea is the lukewarm church because the thing that we intake makes a difference. Isn't that cool? How crazy that that's the, the parallel that Jesus would even use and go, all these things you depend on in the physical leaves you a deficit spiritually. And it's the same, same exact thing in our life is that what is the thing that we depend on more than God in the physical? It's gonna reveal a spiritual deficit in your life. It's super, super, super interesting to me. As we keep reading, verse 18, it says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So then what does Jesus do? He says, everything that you think that you're dependent on in the physical, I can supply to you spiritually and you'll have life like you've never had before. So he says, look, here's what I want you to do. I need you to buy this from me. Interesting that he uses the word buy because it cost us something to live for Jesus. It cost us something to have what he has available for us. But here's the part. 
that I hear most, more often than not. Like guys, I've been in the church a long time. I've been in a ministry for a long time. And this line makes me crazy. It costs too much to live for Jesus. It costs too much to live my life that way. It costs too much to have those standards in my life. It costs too much. But we never understand that it costs us more the other direction. It does cost to live for Jesus. It does cost to have your family in church. It does cost to be in the word every day. It does cost to worship. It does cost to be in prayer. It does cost to have accountability. All of those things cost, but the opposite of those also cost. And they cost you your soul. They cost you something that you can't fix on your own. What cost us to live for Jesus is saying no to myself and saying yes to Jesus who can supply all our need according to his riches and glory and no to the enemy that only comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's the, the opposite side here is that it does cost us something to live for Jesus, but it always costs us more not to. The sad part is we don't usually find that out until it's too late. So it costs us more not to. So it says, buy from me gold refined in the fire. Here's some scriptures for you to read later. Is that when God talks about gold refined in the fire, he's talking about that he refines us, one. He refines us to the point of having righteousness. He refines us to the point of having um, genuineness of faith, our identity. And then uh, David in Psalms talks about the gold, loving more than gold, the word of God is that it does cost us something to have those things, but it costs us more not to. But here's your scriptures to write down. Psalm 19, seven through 10. Malachi 3, one through three. First Peter 1, six through seven. And Isaiah 48, 10. All of those talk about the refining and the gold that we can buy from him. It costs us something. And then it says that he will give us white garments. White garments represent purity and light. They represent righteousness and they represent holy and clean. Something about the church of Laodicea is they always dressed in black. It was just a, a thing. It was, I don't know, I guess they had a funeral every week or something, but they always dressed in black. But when Jesus said, I give you clothes, it says that I give you white garments. Garments that shine, garments that reveal light, uh, garments that represent purity, that represent righteousness. And you see it all throughout Revelation. You see that they were given white garments to wear because it represented holiness. It represented something that was set apart. If you think about a bride at a wedding, she wears white. Why? Same idea here is he gives us white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So we're gonna keep going here. And when it talks about nakedness, here's the other thing I find very important that I wanna mention really quick is that when you're naked, you don't have covering. Spiritually, when we live without covering in our lives, we live outside of accountability. We live isolated and we live accountable to ourselves and ourselves only instead of being accountable to the authority that God has set. And so part of being naked when it's talking about the, the spiritual nakedness that everybody has here is that there's no accountability in their lives. They're living life with no covering. They're living life on their own. They're living life in their own doctrine and their own religion. They're not living according to the word of God and having him as their covering. Um, and then I salve. Because they're spiritually blind, they're in darkness. And the eye salve is to refocus, to see the right things the right way, to have new perspective, and to see what we should really be valuing. Your scripture with that is Ephesians 1.8. Ephesians 
And then as we keep going, it says, um, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So if there's not some challenges, if there's not some correction, if there's not some counsel coming to your life, hmm. It says, to as many as I love, I chasten and I rebuke. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So the challenge portion in this is be zealous and repent. That he's saying, I get all that. We've named all this. We had to identify. We can't fix the things that we refuse to identify in our lives. So he says, now we've walked through this. We've been able to identify some areas that we need to fix. We've been able to identify some areas that I have readily available for you. And now that those are readily available for you, I need you to be zealous and I need you to repent. Because outside of repentance, there's no heart change. There's no life change. Repenting means to turn from one way and go to the other way. And so it says that to be zealous and repent. Look at the grace of God at work there. Here's the cool thing about the grace of God is that yes, there is the grace of God in all situations and all seasons in our life, but it requires equal effort. And we want the grace of God at work in our life, but we don't wanna put any effort into walking out that grace in our life because grace is the empowerment to do the right thing, not the excuse to keep doing the wrong thing. And we get that mixed up. And so when we ask for the grace of God, when we repent and go, God, I need your grace. I need to be able to walk forward in this. And he says, yeah, you got it. But you got to do your part and you got to walk out that grace and choose the right thing. And so that's the be zealous and repent. The next part is the covenant promise. Okay, the covenant promise is conditional on the challenge. Is that outside of repentance, outside of walking in God's grace, we have access to not these just stay lukewarm. So now when we repent, it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. If God is knocking at the door, that means he is outside your life. Do you guys ever invite people over and they stand on the inside of your door and knock? No, they knock from the outside, right? And so this isn't Jesus going, I'm in here. <laughs> okay, he's, no, that's not how this works. It says that he is outside and he knocks. But then it says, he who hears, we have to hear first. We have spiritual ears that are open to hear the voice of God, that are ready to hear the voice of God in our life, that he hears and then opens the door. See, Jesus will not take away our will. He will not impose himself on our life. So you think, how can a church become lukewarm? Because Jesus isn't going to impose. He is not going to impose. Think about this. You can have as much Jesus in your life as you make room for. We can have as much Jesus in our life as we make room for. So when we're not full of him, he is not the problem. We can have as much Jesus in our life as we make room for. It says that he stands at the door and knocks. He who hears and opens the door. So it's not just about hearing, hey, give me a minute. Gotta change my clothes and clean something. We can't just leave him out there and expect change. 
says that when we go open the door, then he comes in and dines with us. Okay, when you dine with somebody, that's a personal thing. That's a personal relationship. So when it says that we open the door, look at all of these things, these things that they had totally removed God from their life, lived a half-hearted life, and then Jesus says, all I need you to do is repent and open the door, and I wanna come hang out with you. I'm not gonna keep you on the outside. I'm not gonna kick you out of your own house. I'm not gonna impose on you. I want a relationship with you regardless of what's happened. All you gotta do is repent and we can set this straight and be back in relationship. That's the kind of God we serve. He's not holding over their head. He wants to dine with us. What we accomplish with life with Jesus is on us. Limitless. We have limitless possibilities living a life that's submitted to Christ. Absolutely limited or limitless, not limited, it's not limited, it's limited, limitless. But it's limitless, the life that we can have when we live a life that is submitted to Christ. But it's on us. Um, and then the second one is that to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. To him who overcomes, Overcomes what? Overcomes what's going on in our lives. But he gave us, he literally outlined the steps to be able to overcome. All we have to do is follow the steps. We repent, we identify it, we repent. And then what was the next part? It says to hear his voice, to open the door, to hang out with him, to have relationship with him. It is not open the door, have a nice meal, and then go, okay, Jesus, I'll try to figure it out on my own. That's how they got there to the first place. Instead, it's having a relationship with him, hearing the word of God, hearing his voice, having a relationship, and then walking out with him the next part of being able to overcome and then sit on his throne, which means we rule and reign in life with Jesus. How cool. So who are we? And then the next line, verse uh, 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's my last challenge with this, is that he who has an ear, let him hear. Do you have ears? We all have ears. But do we have spiritual ears? And even with spiritual ears, who are we listening to? Because even with our spiritual ears, we see how easy it is to live complacent and convenient while being in the church. So are we listening to what the Spirit is saying? Are we listening to what our flesh is saying? Are we listening to what man is saying? Are we listening to what someone else says? Are we listening to what the world is saying? Or are we listening to what the spirit is saying? Because it's not enough just to listen spiritually and sit back and be convenient because we can listen half-hearted too. And we can sit back and listen to things without effort. We can sit back and listen in convenience and still be listening and doing the wrong things because we're listening to the wrong voice. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If the devil can't make us bad, he makes us busy. If the devil can't make us bad, he makes us busy, even if it's busy doing good things. We are the busiest generation that has ever lived. We're busy, we're busy, we're busy, we're busy, we're busy, which gives us an excuse for everything that's not convenient. And that's a trap of the enemy that he wants to keep us doing all of these busy things, not listening to the voice of God, not living wholeheartedly the way that he's created us to live, not living in complete obedience to the word of God. 
See, it's not this legalistic thing of this is what you're doing wrong and this is what you're doing right. That's not what this is at all. He's just pointing out going, every area that you live without me is an area that you miss out on something that I have for you and I wanna give it to you. So it's not a condemning thing. It's an encouraging thing to go thank God that I can identify these areas of my life that I can repent and I serve a good God that still wants me to rule and reign with him and still wants to have a relationship with me and still wants to say yes to all of the promises that he's made available to us. Anything that is pulling us away from church, the word prayer and accountability is a trap of the enemy. So as we're living our lives, as we live each and every day and we go, what things are pulling me away and what things are pulling me to? Because if it's just pulling me away, I feel like that's a trap of the enemy in our lives. The Bible says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. We can't afford to live passive lives. The part of Revelation is this is the end time church. We are living in the end times. We've heard this time and time and time again from um, my dad speaking it to pastors around the world that these are the last days. And we have to live violent about our relationship with Jesus. We have to live violent about what matters according to the word of God. If not, we'll get sifted out. I heard a pastor today and he said, if the church refuses to separate itself from the world, then the world will absolutely separate itself from the church and then they'll be left with the choice. Because living a lukewarm life means I am partway in the world and I am partway in the church. And if the church doesn't decide that we refuse to live according to the world, we refuse and we're gonna separate ourselves and it says the world will absolutely separate itself from the church. But then the church has to decide who they're really gonna serve. That was a crazy thought to me. That was a crazy reality to me. And we see it happening. The world has no problem separating itself. The world has no problem crucifying the church over and over and over. But we have to make the decision. Am I gonna be the church of God? Or am I gonna live lukewarm? Half in the world, half in the church. When you think you're good without it, you've already been deceived and walking dangerous ground. Um, one of the scriptures that I gave you to read says what good is it to gain, to gain the whole world and lose your soul what gain is it to gain or gotta read that again sorry what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul that all of these things that we're pursuing as I do I mean personally I don't preach something that I'm not walking through myself that we do inventory of our lives all the time is it taking us away from what the word of God says, is it taking us away from being planted where we're supposed to be planted? Are we, are we, is it taking us away? And I know I keep bringing up church, but there's a reason the entire New Testament is centered around the church. There's a purpose for that. And church is the most convenient thing not to go to. And I know that online church, sorry if you're watching online tonight, probably going to offend you. I know that it's a wonderful thing in a generation of technology, but it has become a stumbling block for churches because it is more convenient for you to stay home in your pajamas and watch church on a Sunday morning and post about it. There is no accountability. There is no relationship. You are not growing when you are watching at home because you can just turn it off and turn on something else that feeds you a little better if you don't like what's being taught. 
And I know that sounds bold, but God created the church for a reason. He created the body of Christ. He created relationship for a reason. Now, it is a blessing when you're out of town, you want to keep up with what's going on. And it is a blessing when you live somewhere that you don't have a church. And it is a blessing when you're sick because old Rona got you and you want to stay home and watch church. Those quarantine days would be sad without online church. But on the other side, staying home watching online church is convenient. And we've talked a lot about convenience tonight. The other thing that I want to, and again, it's just a lot of this is a very challenging message. And I know, and I really don't want this to come across harsh. I don't want it to come across hard, but I told you it was a tough conversation that we had to have eventually. Okay. But the other side of this, that people only take breaks from the thing that is growing and challenging them to turn to something more convenient. People only take breaks from things that are growing and challenging them to turn to something that's more convenient. Do you want to know? And I will speak on, because again, I am not saying I, I know everything. I'm not saying any of that. All I'm saying is I've been in church a long time and I've sat behind the scenes a long time and every single person I've seen walk away out of the church, that I've seen walk away from relationship, that I've seen walk away from a call of God on their life, that I've seen walk away from ministry, that I've seen walk away from anything is somebody that was plugged in, somebody that decided that it was too hard, it was not convenient for them, so we're gonna take a break. No, we don't take a break from the world or TV or Facebook or relationships that are sucking us out. We take a break from church. We take a break from serving. We take a break from all of these areas in our life that grow and challenge us. I have not seen one of them come back. Not one. That is heart-wrenching to me. That is crushing to me. Like I have a hard time not just crying because I go, you, you missed what God had because of a lie of the enemy. And that's part of this truth that I go, gosh, the compassion of God looking at this church going, you're living lukewarm. You're not gonna get what I have for you. You're not gonna make it because you're half in and you're half out and you're being sifted. And then you take your family with you. So now we've trained our families that when it gets hard, we take a break from church. When it gets hard, we pull out a ministry. The very thing that was created to bless our lives, we get sucked out of. Crazy. It's not how God designed it to be. Guys, he designed the body of Christ not as a legalistic thing. He designed the body of Christ because we can't live without it. That we are the body of Christ. We're a part of the body of Christ. We matter. Every single person here matters. Every single person out there matters. But the lie of the enemy is to pull you out, to pull you away and wreak havoc in your life so that it's too hard to say, it's too busy to stay. And now we're gonna take a break from the things that grow us that actually matter and the things that actually bless our life and go to convenience. And it'll be a dang good time, I promise. Because there's no longer convenience or you no longer have to choose between challenge and convenience. You're living in it and you're walking in it. So that was my heart as I was praying today, as I was praying over this message. I don't, I don't want to see anybody sitting here tonight. I don't want to see anybody sitting here ever miss out on what God has for you and miss out on what God has for your family because of convenience, because of a lie of the enemy, because of the busyness that comes in life. 
but that we would be a church that goes, if I'm getting rid of something, the last thing on my mind is Jesus. And the last thing in my mind is anything in his word that is gonna bless my family. I am going to fight through. The Bible says to fight the good fight of faith. The Bible says to take it, we talked about taking the uh, kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That we would be a church that rises up and says, I'm gonna fight for what matters. I'm gonna fight for what Jesus put on here for me because I, anything we can gain for ourselves outside of Jesus isn't Jesus. It isn't Jesus. So if there's one thing that we can learn from the church of Laodicea, if we can learn from the lukewarm church is don't even worry about being cold, just be hot. Is that it says to be hot or to be cold, but then we go, I choose to live hot. I choose to not live without the word. I choose to not live without any principle within the word because I'm gonna listen to the spirit. I'm gonna listen to what the word says. And if the word says it, that is a standard in my family and I refuse to let it be an option. Anything that we have to ask ourselves if we're doing or not doing, am I spending time in prayer today or am I not? It's an option, not a standard. Am I going to church today or am I not? It's an option, not a standard. So my heart is that we take the word of God and refuse the options, get rid of the options and go, this is the standard of my life. The world does not get to set the standards for my life. The word does. Will you stand with me?